0: We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Rebecca Thomas. Growing up, Thomas thought poetry was, quote, "...the worst." She always hated that unit in high school, and she just didn't get much out of the poetry that they read there, or the way it was taught. Yet today, she is the Halifax Regional Municipality's Poet Laureate, the first Indigenous person to hold that position. A few years ago, in the context of a professional development workshop, she was encouraged to write and submit a piece of creative work and a chance conversation with a colleague pointed her to the poetry of L. Jones, a spoken word artist in Halifax and the city's previous Poet Laureate, as well as a guest on Talking Radical Radio in October 2013. Watching videos of Jones' performances showed Thomas that poetry could be something very different from stuffy, rigid rhymes on a page, and Thomas decided to try her hand at writing and performing poetry. Her first effort was well received, and she was hooked. While poetry is something she came to as an adult, Thomas has always been someone to speak her mind when it comes to injustice. As a youth, it took the form of a refusal to be silent in the face of stereotypes or unfairness in the course of everyday life. With her reconnection as an adult to the Mi'kmaq culture that colonial Canada had denied her in her youth, it was the Idle No More movement that brought her to a more collective and confrontational mode of activism. From her very first forays into spoken word, her poetry has been another extension of this impulse to speak for justice. Most of her work focuses on the experiences and struggles of indigenous people, from missing and murdered indigenous women, to cultural appropriation, to residential schools, and much more. She still performs when she can at rallies and protests and community events, but the role of poet laureate gives her access to many new kinds of spaces, too. She's making full use of this opportunity to go into all the sorts of elite institutions to which a poet laureate is invited, and in those places she speaks these hard truths to groups of people who have rarely been made to confront them before. Thomas speaks with me about poetry, activism, and the relationship between them, and performs her poems Pennies and Redface. We spoke by Skype to Phone from Halifax.
1: My name is Rebecca Thomas. I am a Mi'kmaq woman living in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, and I am also Halifax's first Indigenous Poet Laureate. I came to poetry through a professional development workshop in my place of employment. I was encouraged to do a creative submission, and when I was speaking with one of the coordinators for African-Canadian student supports, she started to talk about Elle Jones and asking if I had heard of her and that I would get along with her. And she referred me to some of Elle's poetry. So then I watched some of her videos and I thought, hmm, like, I wonder if I can do that. So I wrote a poem and submitted it and performed it. And it was incredibly well-received. And so I said, OK, well, let's see if I, you know, can do more. And I started writing and going out to open mics. And then Elle Jones herself invited me out to be one of the feature poets at a Word to Bond Speak series. I always joke that I am child number five of eight. So any chance to get a spotlight was always something I sought out. So I was hooked the moment I started performing and people started listening and asking questions about, you know, Indigenous topics and things that I was really passionate about. Because I came from the world of academia, where I wanted to affect change, but I didn't feel like I was reaching the audience that I wanted to reach. And then poetry, I kind of lucked into it and had a pretty quick rise to fame. But I still had a really great opportunity in which to reach out to the masses. And I ran with it.
0: So what did you think of poetry when you were growing up?
1: Oh, I thought poetry was the worst. (laughs) I always hated that unit in high school. And I think a lot of it because of the way in which poetry is taught and the kind of poetry that is taught. Because I think the way in which poetry was taught to me was that it is this very structured, rigid, metaphorical, very thick sort of literature that was really difficult to navigate. And then I started learning about spoken word and protest poetry and, you know, started listening to spoken word artists. And I realized that poetry can be a really powerful and beautiful tool to get a point across, to use as an activist, all that sort of stuff.
0: What was it about the poetry that you encountered that really got you thinking, yeah, this is something that I want to do?
1: I think it was the passion, you know. This is a person who's up there and they're laying it all out on the stage and they're not taking anything with them. And they're doing it about topics that I cared about, that I was passionate about. And to see people, you know, for all lack of a better word, to see white people engage with topics that were African-Canadian-centered or indigenously-centered and and supporting those topics was just really eye-opening. It was beautiful. It gives me chills.
0: And among the poetry that had this effect on you, was any of it written poetry or poetry on the page?
1: It was mostly spoken and performed poetry. I really, really do love the performance aspect of it, because you can put so much emotion in behind what you deliver. I have a theatre minor, and I always really loved being on stage, and so I really enjoyed that aspect of it. The one written poet that I really, truly enjoy is Rita Joe. She's a Mi'kmaq poet who came long before me at of She's a residential school survivor, and she has this beautiful poem called I Lost My Talk. And it was all about her losing her language in residential school and then trying to regain her language so she could teach the world about herself as a Mi'kmaq person. And my father's a residential school survivor. And so when I read that, I think of him because he lost his language, but he's trying so very hard to regain his culture and pass that on to his children.
0: So on your Facebook page, along with identifying as a poet, you also identify as an activist. How did you get your start as an activist?
1: I feel like I've always been a little bit involved but didn't quite know the word for it or thought that activist meant handcuffing yourself around a tree that they're trying to you know, cut down. Like I didn't understand that activism comes in many different shades and many different styles. And so even when I was quite young and in high school and middle school, I remember taking a stand about things, you know, that girls can wear whatever color they want. And, you know, don't say that that's a girl job or a boy job and being very outspoken about things like that. And then slowly starting to move into the more traditional or public kind of displays of activism. So whether that was going to a protest, I marched in Idle No More here in Halifax. I've delivered pieces of poetry at these kind of rallies and things like that. So my activism started to creep at a very young age. My mom was a single mom for a little while, but she was also the breadwinner of the house. She was a physician. My stepdad stayed home. He did a lot of the homemaking. And so I had a very counterculture upbringing anyway. So for me, the protest, the status quo started from the day that I was born to my mom.
0: How did you make that transition towards more public and collective and confrontational modes of activism?
1: It happened with a lot of anxiety and nerves. I like to be well-liked, and I like to have an audience in which I can reach, and I'm always very aware of the art of diplomacy. I think that you can make a lot of shift and change happen if you're not always the hammer. And so moving from that kind of nuanced form of activism, like you said, into a more traditional activism, I think came along when I became more involved in the indigenous community. So I grew up off reserve. My dad, like I said, was a residential school survivor, and he wasn't able to go back to his community. And because of that, I grew up outside of mine. And the more and more I started to reconnect with community members and get involved and go to reserve and work with Aboriginal youth and organizations, the more and more I saw what a perceived injustice looked like lived as a reality. And I just got so angry and so frustrated and so heartbroken. And sometimes that boils over. And as much as you want to have a sit down negotiation or talk about how these changes need to happen, sometimes you just need to be that hammer. Sometimes you need to draw attention to it. And so I think the very First big public march that I ever did was the I Don't Know More March. I was just finishing up my master's degree and I had studied a lot of this. I'd studied a lot of historical indigenous movements like the American Indian Movement, all that sort of stuff. I'd read about Anna Aquash as like a prominent Mi'kmaq protester in that movement. But then when Idle No More came around and my boss, who was an indigenous woman, she was go march you know, if you want to to go march. And so I went down and I have the Mi'kmaq flag and I'm marching down downtown Barrington Street in Halifax and going to Pride Square and standing behind all the chiefs and hearing the drums and feeling like we were powerful. And that feeling was one of the most gratifying and most addictive feelings.
0: So in the years before that Idle No More moment, how did you connect with Mi'kmaq communities and the Indigenous community more broadly?
1: Well, it started when I was quite young. My dad took me on the powwow trail in Ontario, but before that, you know, he wasn't around very much in my life. He battled alcohol until I was about 15, 16 years old, and then from that point on, I started forging a better relationship with him and my community. When I was very young, my dad would take me to reserve, and he would take me to powwows and events like that when he was around, but I didn't make the connection that that was my history. I was in this very interesting world too, because Me and my sister were the only Indigenous kids in our high school, and we were disconnected from our culture that my dad was Native, but I wasn't. And then as I started to grow and as I started getting more involved through things like working at the Friendship Center with the Aboriginal youth there, then I started working for an Aboriginal education program at Dalhousie University. I started getting involved. I was in the Dalhousie Native Student Association, and I worked for the Dalhousie Native Education Counseling Unit as like a tutor. And I started interacting with people off the reserve who'd either come from community to go to school, or they had grown up in an urban environment. And then when I started working as a community outreach coordinator, that's when I started going into community. And that was one of the really eye-opening experiences for me, driving to the reserve and going to the high schools and speaking to those kids in their space and realizing how very, very different those worlds are. So even though Eskasoni First Nation is a 40-minute drive down from Sydney, Nova Scotia, you realize it is a completely different world when you come into that community and understanding those challenges the students face when they come out. And now I work as a supportive role with students who come into post-secondary and I have an understanding of their lives and what it's like. Because I like I said, I grew up off reserve, so my experience in that is very limited. And it's been something that I've gained in the last probably... Five years or so, understanding what it's like to be in community. When I did the, I don't know like it started to connect. I felt connected. I felt like I belonged to community. I always felt very much like an outsider looking in when I would go into community. I looked the part. I have long dark hair and dark eyes and tan skin and you know all that sort of stuff. Like I looked the part, but I didn't necessarily always feel it. And then when the I don't know more thing happened and I'm marching along people from community who are giving me hugs and they say, I see you around and I heard you and I've heard your name before and stuff. And I've started to realize that people from the various communities knew me. Then I started to feel like I belonged because there is a very big difference from being associated with a group through your heritage and then feeling and owning and living an indigenous experience. That was like a tipping point for me going into community and doing the I don't know more stuff. And now when I go into community, they go, oh, hey, Rebecca, and people know me and they've heard of me and they message me on Facebook or they tweet at me and all that sort of stuff, which is really a cool experience. So it's definitely been a big shift in the last couple of years of constantly feeling like an imposter or feeling like I don't belong to truly feeling at home in community and around other Indigenous folks.
0: And when you started writing and performing poetry, was that integrated with your activism from the word go, or was there a process to get to that point?
1: No, it was right from the get-go, right from the get-go of like, you're going to listen to these words, and then I'm going to tell you how it is. I try to write, you know, love poems, or I try to write poems about this, that, and the other. And it's so hard for me to do, to write about those sorts of things. I'm a poet. Sure, but I see myself far more as a storyteller and as an activist, and I use poetry to do that. So straight from the get-go, whether it's things about identity and the separation of Indigenous communities, whether it's things like missing and murdered Indigenous women, whether it's about cultural appropriation, whether it's how we're spun and perceived in the media, all of those sorts of things, straight from the get-go. People like to listen to my poetry. It's entertaining, but at the same time, it grants a perspective that they don't always have. I will always, always be an activist poet. I don't foresee myself ever being a poet who writes stories about their childhood experience going to the beach in New Brunswick. I'm never going to be a poet like that. I'm always going to be hitting hard when it comes to Indigenous issues and injustices.
0: Why don't you perform a couple of your pieces for the listeners?
1: Sure. This one is one of the most recent ones I wrote, and it's about missing and murdered Indigenous women. I see all of these things, especially with what's going on in the States with the Donald Trump and Black Lives Matter and all these people, you know, on my Facebook feed say, oh, Canada, we're so nice. We don't have racism, all this sort of stuff. And yet you look at how Indigenous people are. It's like Canada has this, like, oh, we're so nice. And there seems to be this carte blanche to completely dismiss and disregard Indigenous people. And when you looked at how when the National Inquiry was launched for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, and then you look at how people react to that and how they say, well, you know, they deserved it. They shouldn't have done this. Well, maybe if they weren't prostitutes, they wouldn't be missing and all these sorts of stuff and not recognizing that there's a history of colonialism that have created situations where indigenous women are disadvantaged, where they're at risk, all of these sorts of things. There's not that connection. It's like somehow we have asked to be murdered. We have asked to be under boil orders. We have asked for reserves. We have asked for second-class citizenship. We have asked for the Indian Act. For some reason, there is that belief that we deserve what we get. And so this is like a tongue-in-cheek kind of commodification of Indigenous women and how we are lost. And yet our culture and our style and everything that people like about us, our aesthetic is consumed and bought and purchased. So anyway, that's the piece of it. It's a pretty intense poem, so I hope you enjoy it. It's called Pennies. She slays with those double braids. She is slayed because of those double braids. The original voice is silenced from those double braids. They can be bought and sold, those double braids. In fact, there's a sale at the bay for those double braids. Look for the HBC original canoe for your half-off Canadian-branded series of snowshoes. Erase the creators of those goods. Their origin and history have no need to be understood. Use them for your favorite winter activities, like lightly frolicking over her forgotten snow-covered body. It's buy one, get one, misrepresentations of her story. Just look for the nearest store occupying our territory. Check the back of your status cards for your special pin to activate the coupon that includes free judgment to go along with the perceived sin that what she got, she had coming. And if she goes missing, have her family bring in the newspaper clipping. Show it at the register for their discounted black suits, dresses, and other dark labels. It's a quality purchase that can be worn over and over again as a funeral staple. Given the current societal climate, they'll get plenty of wear out of this product. Like last year's fashion, it's so easy to forget her, just toss her remains in the aptly named Red River. The vitriol comes free if she had some form of mental illness. It's a points card full of expert witness that would be remiss if he didn't remind us that she was at risk because she happened to choose to be in the prostitution business. You'll find the public apathy on the shelf next to the festival headdresses. After every 10 biased news story, you'll get a free personal allegory of a guy who knows a guy who dated a native girl because he doesn't see color and is well-read, who wants a gold star because he went to a powwow once and totally listens to a tribe called Red. I'd say their names, but there are far too many. We are the forgotten Canadian penny, our coppery skin removed from circulation over time because it isn't as valued as the lighter dimes. It's 10 for 1. What a deal. Just like our land, we come at a steal. Her body's a commodity bought and sold as prepackaged native spirituality. Sorry, we don't sell an empowered matriarchy, but we do carry exotified Indians included with batteries. Her life's receipt is marked final sale. There are no refunds on colonization retail. It's a Black Friday event with tax exemption. It's our culture turned boho style consumption. Keep beating those drums for social redemption. And maybe, just maybe, we'll get positive media attention. APTN coverage of a sunrise ceremony on a red morning because the red are mourning. The double braids found 90% off in the bargain box. And we don't know where they came from because the tags were ripped off. One more? Okay, I'm going to give you the story for this one. So I went to a tribe called Red. So they are an indigenous hip-hop electronica housebeat group. And they've given countless interviews over this concept of red face, so dressing up as an Indian, quote-unquote. And so they have said, please, please don't wear war paint. Please don't wear war bonnets and headdresses to our shows. You're making fun of us. We don't like it. And so I'm aware of this. You know, indigenous folk are aware of this. And most pretty diehard fans are aware of this. So I was quite shocked when I went to the show and I saw three people with war paint on their face. They had, you know, streaks across their cheeks and forehead and chin. And so I went up with one of my other Indigenous friends to confront them and ask them to take it off because I was really offended and saddened to see that. And I expected, you know, two reactions, one of which would be, okay, roll their eyes, whatever, they go back to watching the show. The second reaction is what I was hoping for, which would have been, oh, we're sorry. We didn't know. We were just trying to have fun. Yeah, of course. We'll go wash it off. Don't worry about it. Thanks for letting us know. I got a third option back, and that was such an aggressive and angry response. They were so mad at me that I asked them to take their war paint off their face. They demanded to see my status card as though I needed to be a card-carrying Chapter 27 of the Indian Act. Indian to be able to challenge them instead of saying, what you're doing is racist regardless of my ethnicity. They tried to justify why it was okay. They were ready to fight. And my friend Dylan, who is a lot more calm than I am, said, you know, listen, Rebecca, they're not going to change. We just need to walk away. So I said, okay, I'll walk away. And then I wrote a Facebook status, basically saying to the people who picked a fight with the Mi'kmaq and Métis folk who asked you to wash off your war paint, you've just earned yourself a poem, sincerely, Halifax's Poet Laureate. And that post went viral. That post exploded all over the place. And then CBC contacted me, and they wanted me to come on and do the poem. And so I wrote this poem called Red Face about that notion of red face, of dressing up as Indigenous folk. So anyway, this is the poem in reaction to that. It's called Red Face. I've got a good one. Johnny Depp, Rooney Mara, and a Cleveland Indians fan walk into a bar. Just kidding. It's not funny. Red face. Let's just call it misplaced cultural appreciation instead of blatantly obvious racism. Criticisms of sensitivity are severe, so I've decided to turn it on its ear. This year for Halloween, wait for it, it will score some serious points on the party scene. I'm going to honor my ancestry and go as my great-great-grandmother, a genuine, full-blooded Caucasian princess. But not to excess, just a tasteful amount of Starbucks pumpkin spice and messy knot and Navajo-printed Urban Outfitters dress. I've accessorized it with Coachella tickets, but no headdress. I know that's racist. I read Huffington Post in excess. Are you offended yet? Let's make it all better with a Twitter apology, class pansy emoji, and the hashtag blessed. By now, I bet you're pissed. You should be. What I did wasn't cool, so let me school you in your misplaced anger at the frustrated native instead of the war paint wearer. See, we lived through centuries of genocidal terror, catastrophic errors for simply being brown, born brown in the legacy of the clown, crown. You? You doubled down on your privilege when you demanded to see our cars inflicted and reopened generations of scars because you were called out for your racist garb of colors on your face, even poor taste given the main act on stage. Do you think that tribe called red are just a couple of Indians in a phase on some sort of display, the few who broke free of the colonial cage? Can you see why I'm enraged? It's a shame that you chose the poet laureate to engage because I don't pull punches when I play this game. Our women go missing. Our men shot and killed because they sought help for a see rimming, go fund me pages, paint the shooter as the victim, his story prioritized when accounts are conflicting. Did you know that we've never had an ill new hold the IMAC minister's position? So on the inside, my war paint is dripping, pooling into my spirit, I'm sipping the fire, I am the physical embodiment to contrast the native inspired, I will not tread lightly. I came armed to fight you see, two degrees and enough community backing, I will line up my brothers and sisters and send you packing because we are done with your attacking. This is Turtle Island, after centuries of being repressed, you owe us a debt, you can go wash your face now and pay us your respect.
0: Thank you for sharing those. So what kinds of venues have you had a chance to perform in, both before and since becoming Poet Laureate?
1: Before I became Poet Laureate, I performed in poet spaces. I performed at open mics. I performed in bars. I performed in literary areas, like, you know, we're doing a poetry reading at this library. Can you come here? That sort of stuff. Since I've become Poet Laureate, I have performed in city council. I have been keynote speakers in conferences at universities. I have guest taught and spoken in lecture classes in universities. I have gone to a lot of conferences. I opened up the United Way breakfast, all this sort of stuff. So it's kind of interesting because all of those places that I named, those are not places that are traditionally welcoming or diverse. Our city council is entirely white. And so to be able to go as an Indigenous woman and speak and perform on Indigenous issues to an audience who probably never, ever hears that or interacts with Indigenous people on a regular basis has been a really great and eye-opening experience to me. Some of them are very appreciative and are very humbled by what I have to say because they've never had that experience. And other people plug their ears with their fingers and go, la, 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 like, you know, I don't want to hear this, this is not important to me, or brush it off as being unimportant or not current. It's been an interesting transition going from an open mic where everyone's stopping their feet and snapping their fingers and hollering out in agreement with what you have to say to these very formal places where I can sense the awkwardness in the room, especially when I say things like white people or settlers, or I talk about things and injustices like red face that I know that they've probably done. I'm unapologetically a Megamaw community member when I go into these spaces. I will always put the needs in my community over diplomacy aspect or not wanting to hurt people's feelings or tiptoeing around white fragility and those sorts of things. Because after my two-year appointment, I have to go back to my community with my head held high and say that I did the best I could to represent you and to be a voice for the Indigenous people. And so when I go into those spaces, I don't perform my lighter stuff. I perform the ones that you heard. I perform the ones about missing and murdered Indigenous women. I perform red face. I perform ones about reconciliation and how we are very far from the concept of reconciliation here in Canada. Because those are the people, whether or not I like it, have power to enact change. They are the ones that raise motions. They are the ones that vote. They are the ones who put forward policies that affect my community and affect my people. And so I don't pull punches when I go into those rings because I want them to hear what I have to say about being an Indigenous person and the lived reality of what it means to be an Indigenous person in Canada.
0: So I guess really our whole conversation has been about this, but address directly the question of the relationship between poetry or arts in general and activism. What does a political commitment bring to making things? And what can artistic creation contribute to struggles to change the world?
1: I think a lot of it has always started with art, because that's something that people have control over. All you need is a pen and a piece of paper, and you can write some beautiful lyrics or a beautiful piece of poetry. Whereas things like policy and laws and all of that sort of stuff requires so much privilege and so much background to be able to enact that change. And so when you have something like poetry, like music, like storytelling, like dance, all of that sort of stuff, you can tell stories and you can affect people. You can elicit this emotional response and you don't need to be incredibly wealthy to be able to do it. When you have this kind of grassroots movement through art where anybody can do it, it creates a space that allows for change and for protest. And when you do something well and you put your passion and your drive into it, people notice. Not everyone will get noticed. Not everyone will have an opportunity to maybe be the poet laureate or to be the next Kendrick Lamar or Beyonce or what have you. But it's still a space in which you can express yourself and you can put passion to words. And I think if you come together in a large enough collectives, people are going to have to listen.
0: You have been listening to my interview with Rebecca Thomas, the Poet Laureate of Halifax. To learn more about her work, search for the page Rebecca Thomas Poet on Facebook. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates, or follow us on Facebook or Twitter.